0: to red, white, and confused. I'm your host, Heather Evans. Today on the show, I am delighted to be speaking with Chloe Maxman, who is the youngest woman ever to serve in the Maine State Senate at 28 years old. She was elected in 2020 after unseating a two-term Republican incumbent and former Senate minority leader. She is currently serving District 13. In 2018, She served in the Maine House of Representatives after becoming the first Democrat to win a rural conservative district. Senator Maxman just published a book with her campaign manager, Canyon Woodward, titled Dirt Road Revival, How to Rebuild Rural Politics and Why Our Future Depends on It from Beacon Press. So if all y'all don't have that book, you should run out and get it. Senator Maxman or Chloe, if I may, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And yes, please call me Chloe. Well, thank you so much for being here today. I have really been looking forward to your visit, primarily because I live in one of those rural districts that you talk about in your book. And I, I keep thinking if if you can win in rural America, then maybe Democrats can turn things around in other rural districts too. So my first question is, and this is kind of a big question. I realize it's going to have like a lot of different answers, what are democrats doing or perhaps not doing in rural america that is affecting whether they win mm, such
1: a good and important question there and there is so much to that answer i think before i dig in i just always like to say that when i when i talk about the democrats i kind of mean in general the national reputation of the democratic party there are so many amazing Candidates and organizers on the ground in rural spaces who have been doing this work for years or who are running right now and all their work has got to be honored and kept separate from the general critique, but um, you know the Democrats have really abandoned rural spaces in 2009 there was no partisan lean amongst rural voters. But as of 2019, rural America was going Republican by 16 points. That's a pretty wild shift in such a short amount of time. And the consequences of that have been Republican capture of state legislatures. Democrats have lost almost a thousand legislative seats in that same time period. And it also is leading to national consequences like the election of Donald Trump, the Democrats' inability to hold on to Congress. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So it's just um, it's a pretty it's a pretty scary time, and rural Americans have a huge influence on American politics because of the way our electoral system is is structured. the The Dems, I think the the best way to think about it in my mind is that the Dems have a really top down strategy. They're really focused on national and state level races. Like governorships, US con- congressional seats, or the, or the presidential. And so, what happens is that to win those races, you just need as many people as possible to vote. And if that's your strategy, you get the best bang for your buck when you're organizing in urban spaces. So, Democrats spend all their time getting folks to register in cities, getting folks to turn out in cities, and they, they leave behind all of the rural all of the rural seats and rural races. This is kind of compounded with historical economic and social factors that have really led progressives to concentrate in the cities. And that goes all the way back to, um, you know, rural laborers traveling to the cities and being able to join unions and having good jobs. And there's a whole history there that we don't have to get into right now. But since progressives are concentrated in cities, Democrats focus in cities and they've left everything else behind.
0: Yeah, and I, I think about, like, I actually do this exercise with my students a lot. If we're mixing up, like, if we're, if we have a mixing bowl and we're putting in ingredients, things that, like, if we could build the perfect candidate or build the perfect race, here's what we need in it. What would you say that Democrats mm-hmm. need to kind of put in it in rural areas? What, I guess, what should they do a little different? Well, I think, you know, certainly
1: when it comes to statewide races, Democrats need candidates from, from rural places, you know, like, um, like John Pester is a really good example. You know, he's a Democrat representing a pretty bad district and he's from a rural place and he kind of understands a different language and a different way of life and, and all of that. Um, in Maine, we just came off of a, a really big race trying to unseat Susan Collins and the candidate from the, from the Democratic side was from Southern Maine from a part of Maine that is known as being very liberal and wealthy. And so it just didn't, just didn't work well. I think, you know, we also need candidates who are really authentic, who are trying to reform the democratic party to recreate it and reorient it so that it can be really reflective of, of rural realities. And, um, and I don't think that always happens when you have just like a, a diehard Democrat who isn't going and talking to rural Republican voters.
0: Yeah. And I know, cause I've, um, I read your book and I was impressed by just how many doors you knocked on. So tell all of our listeners just how many doors that you visited.
1: I, I knocked on
0: 20,000 doors in, in two cycles. Yeah, that's wild. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. Now in college, you did some organizing as well, correct? Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, when I was in college, I did a lot of work trying to get uh, my school. I I went to Harvard, and we were trying to get Harvard to divest its endowment from fossil fuel companies. Um, Harvard has the largest endowment of any institution on planet Earth. Uh, It's about $40 billion, and we were just trying to hold all of that privilege and power accountable. Um, It took Harvard
0: nine years to divest, but they did eventually. Yeah, that's great. Um, so, in terms of the book, so on my end, I've actually been posting quotes from your book. I've uh, I've been talking to people about your book. I think a bunch of people have now bought your book because I keep talking about it on social media. Um, what I've oh, noticed though, <laughs> what I've noticed though, is that um, every once in a while, I'll get a little like pushback from Democrats. Mm. Who will say like, mm-hmm. hold up now, you know, like I, you know, I've even had someone say that they didn't like the title of the book. And I thought, that's odd. Have given that you wrote it with Canyon, have you guys had pushback from Democrats or has has it not really been that way? Yeah, you know, it's, it's
1: interesting. I, I've gotten a lot of messages from Republicans and independents who um, really like the book. there has been some pushback from the Democrats. I think, you know, I think, I think as Democrats, especially in this moment in history, we are just deeply invested in, in winning and the issues that we're talking about are so personal and have such a big impact on our lives that, you know, to go have a conversation with a pro-life Republican and see if they'd be willing to vote for a Democrat that doesn't doesn't always feel good, um, and I think that's understandable. I think I have a bit of a different perspective on it. You know, I don't think we can protect reproductive rights without those conversations. But it's a it's a bit of a it's a very different way of thinking about what it means to be a Democrat and how the Democratic Party should operate.
0: Yeah. And as I was reading, it was one of your earlier chapters about your first race. I came across the description where uh, you're talking about getting a list of potential voters from the Democratic committee and thinking like this list is really not what we want to go after. That you wanted to expand that list and go after people who are either independent or uh, conservative. And then your list changed. And when it came to kind of getting out the vote, the committee wanted to go visit with those people. How, mm-hmm. Tell tell the listeners a little bit about that because I know that like you were kind of nervous about them doing that.
1: Yeah. So this was, um, we definitely faced challenges with the party um, in both of our races, but in 2018 we were campaigning in a in a very red district. You know. Uh, a Democrat hadn't won the seat since it had been redistricted and uh, had a 16-point Republican advantage. So it was, a steep, it was a steep curve for us. We came into the experience really trying to do everything ourselves, really with a focus on the idea of Democrats have to do stuff differently in rural places. You know, and this is also a district that voted for Trump just a couple years before, One of the key things that we did was create our own canvassing universe, so we didn't use um, what the party sent us, and the the canvassing universe is basically the doors that you go talk to, because you don't knock on every door, you just knock on a a targeted list of doors, because we only got so many hours in the day. Um, And so what we found in 2018 was that so many of the doors that we were knocking on had literally never been contacted by a Democratic campaign or canvasser in their entire voting history. And we were the first ones to show up and talk with them. And many of them said that they'd vote for me. So when it came time for get out the vote, the state party was going to go talk to every voter that a Democrat had ID'd. And so that included all of these Republicans, who were voting for no Democrat except for me. And they wanted to send their Democratic volunteers to these doors and say, are you voting for all of these candidates? Um, And we asked them to please not do that because we were, you know, we worked really hard to build a new relationship with these Republicans. You know, they were, they weren't willing to vote for any other Democrat, but they were willing to vote for us because of the way that we ran our campaign and, and just everything that we did. And we were really worried that when the party showed up that, you know, asking if this Republican voter was going to vote for all of these Democrats, that it would just really alienate folks and make them feel like we had like surreptitiously got them sucked into the Democratic Party apparatus. And um, our relationship felt important and deep, but also fragile. And um, we thought we would lose if that happened and we begged them not to do that.
0: Yeah. I I really liked reading about the approach that you took at the doors because it is deep canvassing and political scientists have done multiple studies on the effects of deep canvassing, even for something just like an issue, having a conversation with somebody who perhaps doesn't quite agree with you, but, but finding common ground. And I I think that that's key Mm -hmm. to, to these rural districts, just going up and just having a conversation. Now um oh, definitely yeah. Yeah. So for those who may be driving and you're tuning in and you're like who is this wonderful person that Heather's talking with? This is Chloe Maxman. She is the youngest woman ever to serve in the Maine State Senate. Um she was elected at 28 years old and elected in 2020 and she unseated a two-term Republican incumbent and former Senate minority leader. She also was a representative for the Maine House back in 2018. And she just published a book with her campaign manager, Canyon Woodward, that is titled Dirt Road Revival, How to Rebuild Rural Politics and Why Our Future Depends on It from Beacon Press. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about knocking on doors and just how many doors you knocked on. when it came to the overall campaign, how important was social media to your campaigns? Well, each of them, especially given that you were running in a rural district. Yeah, we social media was not not a huge focus
1: of ours we we live in a rural district where not everyone has access to the internet we also my district is comprised mostly of Lincoln county which is the oldest county by age in Maine and Maine is the oldest state in the country so it's just not like a equitable or reliable source of information for folks Um, I mean, we did, you know, we had our video, we had our Facebook page. We did, we did our, we did some basic social media stuff, but it
0: wasn't, it wasn't a huge focus of, of what we did. Did you do any, any Twitter at the time or was it mainly Facebook? Mainly Facebook. Um, anything that we did on Twitter or Instagram
1: was really geared towards our friends who weren't based in Maine.
0: Yeah, um, here we actually have a congressional election happening currently, so we don't have any state races right now, and um, we have an incumbent who has been in office since 2010. We have a challenger um, who is fairly unknown at the, at the present time um, um, who is challenging him, so she's the Democratic challenger. Um, what I do know about that race is that um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of emphasis on social media. Uh, And I wondered if, you know, again, given that we're in such a rural district, perhaps that's the reason. So that might match up with yours as well. Um, But I do want to say with your race. So when you did use social media, when you did use these kinds of platforms, did you ever run into times where you thought, gosh, I should be blocking someone on social media, or I should be like, engaging with like not really engaging on social media with with citizens in my district or did you kind of leave it up as a free-for-all we
1: we didn't block people um we you know we there's definitely a lot of negativity on social media like there is with most political things these days but um we just tried to let folks express themselves and not not get get to us too much
0: yeah, and um, towards the end of your book, you talk about your second election, especially in the negativity that came towards you um, by the Republican Party. You didn't go negative during your campaigns, correct? That's true. We ran we ran one hundred percent positive campaigns. So what made you do that? Because I, as a political scientist, I actually spend a couple weeks on negative campaigning in my classes. Mm-hmm. And so students and I we, we talk about like I guess the benefits or the disadvantages of going negative and when people go negative and all that. So what was it that made you stay positive? You know, I think it was
1: it was a couple things. It was definitely something that Kenyon and I were really committed to as positive people, um, and as people who had been turned away from politics because of its negativity. We really didn't want to bring more of that into the into the into the world um you know i think we also just heard it really loud and clear from our constituents too that people were so fed up with the negative campaigning and they were they were literally not voting because it was so toxic so we just didn't want to play into that and we wanted to model a different way of of doing politics so um so we decided to run positive and and that doesn't mean we never defended ourselves, you know, it doesn't mean we were silent all the time, but it just means we didn't put any effort into slandering our opponent, um, you know, got better things to do.
0: Now, I know that with your second campaign, this was, <laughs> you made the decision to run, and then lo and behold, COVID, right? COVID hits. Mm-hmm. How did that rock your kind of campaigning world?
1: Yeah, COVID
0: through a huge wrench in our
1: plans just like everyone else's plans for for life um you know we had decided to run for the senate seat because we were really excited to organize and to have huge canvas days and have it be a really community vibrant uh kind of campaign um and when covid hit you know that that quickly went up the window so um you know i think it It meant that all of the campaigning fell to us, you know, we didn't have any of our volunteers go and door knock. Uh, I did all the door knocking and it just became a bit more of an isolating experience, but one of the things that we did very early on was we used all of the volunteers that had signed up to help us and our access to the voter database to start a mutual aid network through our campaign. Um, We, we called Every single senior in the district offered food, transportation, uh, prescription pickups. Anything people needed, we would provide it for them. And we ended up making uh, over thirteen thousand five hundred phone calls to folks in our district um, with about two hundred volunteers just to get to get folks some help. And that ended up being, uh, you know, a bit of a silver lining in those early days of COVID was just how people wanted help and people needed help and it all kind of came together in a really beautiful way.
0: That's awesome. So if you were giving advice to anyone thinking about running in a rural district um, about issues that they should pay attention to, things that they can talk about that kind of everybody can agree on so that it's not exceptionally partisan, what would be those issues you would advise people to discuss? I think, I mean,
1: I personally think that with almost any issue there's a way to talk about it where you can find common ground but certainly some of the themes that I hear most regularly are on both sides of the aisle there's just a huge frustration with politics this very ubiquitous feeling that we have been let down by our political system that we are not represented that the people that we elect fail us and um, I think that's really difficult here but also you know there's there's an opportunity there to create a different type of politics and and try and reinvigorate some kind of faith in democracy that was that was by far where I found the most common ground with people
0: yeah and actually that's um as a professor right I find that common ground with students in my classes too and it's like what are we all frustrated about we're frustrated with politics in general so that's a really great point now I know that you, you went door to door and afterwards you also wrote little cards to people. Can you tell everybody a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, part of the, part of the ethic
1: of our campaign was forming real relationships with our voters. And a lot of this was made easier by the fact that our, our legislative districts in Maine are more manageable than a lot of other states. So some of this was easier because of that, but nevertheless, the same principle holds true every time I talked to a voter at the door. I'd go home that night and I'd write them a little postcard that said, "Thank you so much for taking the time to talk," um, which is something I genuinely meant. Like it's a big deal for someone to stand in their home and talk to a candidate, and you know, gave them my phone number and just wanted them to know that I remembered our conversation and really appreciated it. And then those would go in the mail the next day. So. Um, wrote a lot of, a lot, a lot of clincher cards, as we called them, you know, so even if I talked to a voter two or three times, every time I talked to them, they get, they'd
0: get another postcard. And I hear that your hands ended up with blisters on them. It's true, yes. Um, As we got closer to
1: the elections, I would sometimes write cards to people who weren't home, And there was a couple of times and I was just writing so many of those postcards at night that I developed these huge blisters on my, on my fingers. Um, But
0: it was worth it. It was worth it. I was going to say that's dedication. So, (laughs) yeah, Yeah. now um, you're in Maine. So the Maine legislature is a little different than other state legislatures. You're, as you mentioned, it being a little bit more manageable in terms of its size um, now, correct me if I'm wrong. So, as a, as a representative, you were representing, is it about 9,000 people? Yes, something? that's right. Okay. And then as a state senator, how many people are in your district? Just under 40,000. Okay. So, I think it's important, like here in Virginia, our districts are a little bit larger than that. Um, so, right. people thinking about like how to replicate this moving forward, that's something they should consider it, it would be, I guess, more difficult to knock on all the doors here than there. And then you had some, also you had public financing of your campaign, correct? That is very true too. So how does that work? Yeah. um, Yeah. You're so right. And you know, it's something we talk
1: about in the book that there are some pretty big factors that let us run the race the way that we could. Um, And, you know, we try to own that and also still draw out lessons that can be applicable to, to larger districts. One of the ones that, that doesn't translate well is that we have public financing in Maine. I think the only other state that has it is California, and it and it basically means that candidates have an option to run what we call clean and get funding from the state, and that funding is limited and has really tight restrictions on it, so we can't take any money from folks outside of our district. Um, We can't take any money from corporations or lobbyists, so it really is built to keep money out of politics, you know, and kind of limit the influence that money has on campaigns and politicians. It's an awesome program, you know, it makes sure candidates can really spend their time talking to voters. It means that you don't have to know wealthy donors to be able to run for office. Um, It really is quite amazing, and most candidates here do run through that program. But um, in every other state, you know, you do have to dial for your dollars, you have to fundraise, you have to pay your staff, you have to make sure you can fund everything. And so that does change the equation of what, what the campaign looks like.
0: Yeah, I wish that we could replicate that everywhere, actually. Uh, that would be great yeah. if, if people didn't have to call up donors. <laughs> now, I've heard you do not plan to run again for Senate. Is that correct? That's true. So what will you be doing instead?
1: I So Kenny and I just started a nonprofit, C4, called Dirt Road Organizing, and we are getting into gear to really support rural organizers and candidates, make sure that they have all the support that they need to run for office, try and make sure that folks have access to what what we wish we had had when we were running for office. I also do a lot of, um, my other job is doing youth climate organizing work here in Maine and really making sure young folks in rural Maine have access to um, register to vote, to get to the polls, um, to do civic engagement work and all that kind of stuff. And um, I, also, I also farm. My, my partner and I have a little farm together and
0: out here doing our farm tours right now. That's fantastic. Well, I wish you all the success the rest of this year, and with all of those activities that you have going on. Thank you so much for being on the show today. For Thank everyone, you so much
1: for having me,
0: Heather. Absolutely, and for everyone who's driving, thanks for listening. If you happen to miss any piece of this broadcast today, and you'd like to catch up, you can do so. This show again comes on on Thursdays at six and Sundays at one. But you can catch up on podcasts. Just look for Red, White, and Confused on Spotify iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Have a great week.